we've been systematically going through the book of Acts. Uh, and by now, if you've been a part of this, you understand that the book of Acts is an inspired summary of the Acts of the Apostles. As they founded churches in strategic locations throughout the Roman Empire, and then the churches, as they grew, did their part by saturating the surrounding area with the gospel. It's all about sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, this morning, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 17. But before we get there, I want to review some of the bidding just to, for us to remember, what did Jesus do to prepare his disciples to share the gospel? Well, in the book of Acts, at the very beginning in chapter 1, Jesus wanted to make sure his disciples understood what the gospel contained. What, what, what it was about. And he wanted to make sure they were convinced that the gospel was true. In a nutshell, the gospel is about God's only begotten son coming to earth, dying on the cross for our sins, and then he was buried and he rose again the morning of the third day. That's the gospel. That last plank, that third plank on the resurrection, they were still a little weak on, so he devoted time uh, and we read this in, back in Acts chapter 1. He says, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering, suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom. So if there was any doubt about the resurrection, let's deal with it. I'm going to show you some proofs to convince you that I am for real. I have risen from the dead. Now, once they were convinced, you might think that they were ready to share the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ. But Jesus let them know that they were still not yet ready to go out. What was missing? Was there something missing in the gospel? Is there another message? Is there a new revelation? Are we adding more planks to this? Will the gospel change? Will it morph and become something and you have to be ready for the change? Absolutely not. The gospel is fixed poured in concrete. It's the foundation for all of our souls and for the foundation of the church. It will never change. The issue is not with the message. It's the messenger. He says, even with all of that, as much as you understand the gospel and what I have done and who I am and you're convinced that it's true, you're still not ready. But he said, you will. You will be ready. He says in verse 8 of chapter 1, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And this leads us to our first gospel truth. Those who come to Christ are empowered to share the gospel. You see, you want to share the gospel? You need to be empowered to do that. And that power does not come from you. It comes from the Spirit of God himself. And you have to ask, why? Why must I be empowered by the Spirit of God? I understand the gospel. I'm convinced of the gospel. Let me go. Let me go out to the world and, and convince others that it's true. And that's your problem. That's not the goal of the gospel. It's necessary, but it's not sufficient. Of course we want to explain what the gospel is about and let them think about them, reach right conclusions, and to be persuaded. But we're not here to persuade and convince. We're here to convict and convert. Jesus said when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, in John chapter 16, 
He said, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. And if I do not go away, the helper, a.k.a. Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin. That's the goal of the gospel, is to share the truth of who Jesus is, what he did. And as you are presenting that message, the Holy Spirit is bringing about conviction in the heart and soul of the one who's listening to you. And that's something you and I cannot do. Only the Spirit of God can bring a person under conviction. They feel the weight of their guilt and shame, and they're drawn to Christ to find forgiveness. That's why we need to be empowered to share the gospel, because that's the end point. We also need to be empowered to stand against the forces of evil, for we are seizing the kingdom out of the hands of the evil one. You don't have the power to do that, but God does. You and I have to have the power to go the distance. For we're not taking the gospel to the end of the street, we're taking it to the end of the world. We're not sharing the gospel on an hour and a half on a Sunday morning and calling it a day. We share the gospel of Jesus Christ until the end of the age. We have to be empowered and energized to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth for all time. Now, with that in mind, and with this gospel truth, uh, let's come to our text in Acts chapter 7, Uh, 17, beginning with verse 1. And we'll see that Paul is the classic energizer gospel bunny. Beginning with verse 1, as as Paul continues to share the gospel, move about from one city to another, he left Philippi, and he's now moving along. It says, now, when they had passed through uh, Granger and Union Gap, uh, they came to Yakima. Oh, uh, excuse me, Let's not go that far. And when they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in. I like that. Let's go, boys. We're going in. No delay. You see, God empowered us not just to travel, but to witness wherever we travel. We found a a synagogue. Let's go, boys. We're going in. And he shared the gospel of Jesus Christ. For as long as it was beneficial... And after three Sabbaths, it was no longer beneficial. There was too much pushback. And so we read in verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. So whenever they went, wherever they went, where the opportunity presented itself, there they were going in, and they preached the gospel for as long as it took to bring about the end of conviction and conversion. Let me ask you, how long do you think Paul could preach? Would you like to invite him next Sunday? Bring your lunch, maybe your dinner. It says that he preached for three Sabbaths. I'm not sure if he's preached for three entire weeks uh, until we got to the Sabbath. But we do know in Acts chapter 20, we get an uh, inkling of just how energized Paul was to share the gospel. He's in Troas. And it says on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. 
kept going and going and going and going and going. You want me to stop, don't you? And going. The Energizer Gospel Bunny. Unfortunately, not everyone could keep up with him. For we read, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep. And he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Talk about a conversation killer. Well, that should do a stop preaching, Paul. We got to deal with this. And Paul could almost say, wait a minute, I'm not done. I got more to say. What does he do? Paul went down and bent over him, uh, over him and taking him in his arms says, do not be alarmed, his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. You know, he kept going on and on and on. You know, we have to be empowered to go the distance. We have to be empowered to resist uh, the wiles of the devil. We have to be empowered to speak truth to people's hearts and believe that the Holy Spirit is bringing that person to a point of conviction and seeking salvation. Example of that was uh, just in the past where last Sunday, Pastor Kevin talked about uh, Paul in Philippi. And he was, they were beaten and thrown into jail. And uh, at midnight, they were praying and singing praises to God, and there was an earthquake. This is the original jailhouse rock. And uh, the jailer was overcome by all of this. And he came to them and he said, Sirs, what must I do to keep my job? Well, he didn't say that. Sirs, what must I do to make you happy? Sirs, what must I do to calm this chaos and this pandemonium? No, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? You see, he was under conviction. The Holy Spirit brought him to his, 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 the realization that he's lost. And he needs remedy. He needs to find a way to be free from this, this shame and this guilt. And at that moment, Paul preached to him the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he was saved. And that's what it's all about. Um, you know, there's, a, there's an on button to gospel. There's an on switch. There's no off switch. People have desperately tried to find it for 2,000 years. How do we stop the spread of the gospel? They can't find it because it doesn't exist. At Dark 30 on Pentecost, when 110 people were filled with the Holy Spirit, they started a global movement that has not ended. And it will continue to spread day and night until the second coming of Christ. You cannot stop the gospel. Can you imagine going to the Apostle Paul and say, hey, Paul, here's an idea. Why don't you take off your Apostle's cap and put on the, the cap of a tourist? I mean, you've gone through some beautiful cities. Why don't you immerse yourself in their cultures, learn from it, enjoy it, experience the moment, go hunting, go fishing, put a tarp over a chariot, make like a camper, but stop pre preaching the gospel. <laughs> Paul can see it say to you, I can no longer stop preaching the gospel and I could stop breathing. Have you ever tried to stop breathing? 
You hold your breath and you're confident. I can keep it in. What good on you? For about a minute. And then you start feeling that pressure building up inside of you. And it becomes stronger and stronger. <laughs> you can't hold it in. You can't stop it. You have to breathe. Paul expresses something like that. The driving force that compels him to share the gospel. Speaking to the Corinthians, he was toying with the idea of what apostles can, can boast about in their apostleship. And he knows and he admits that uh, one thing apostles cannot boast about is preaching the gospel. Well, why? He said, for when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast since I am compelled to preach Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. I'm compelled. I'm driven. You know, Peloton has nothing on Paul. You know, when he came to Christ, you know, a motivational chip was inserted in his spirit by the person of the Holy Spirit, and he's driven to share the gospel. He couldn't stop. You know, the prophets knew something about that. When the word of God came upon them to speak the word to people, do you think they could hold it back? Do you think they could stop? Jeremiah toyed with that idea. He said, but if I say, I will not mention his word or speak anymore in his name. His word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. You can't stop the gospel. It will continue until the day of Christ. This leads us to our second gospel truth. Those who come to Christ are enlightened to share the gospel. You see, there is a symbiotic relationship between inspiration and illumination. As the Holy Spirit inspires the prophets and the apostles to write the word of God, he illuminates the hearts of the reader to understand it. And those who are enlightened, they gain crucial insight into the gospel. By that, we mean that they understand Christ is the central figure in history. You understand that? Christ becomes the central figure in history, but also in Scripture. What did Paul say when he went into those synagogues as the Energizer Gospel Bunny? Well, we read in Acts 17, verses 2 and 3. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So he was drawing from Scripture all of the proof texts that point to a person, Jesus Christ. You see, Scripture is Christocentric. It centers around the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus, when he was speaking to the, the crowds, he rebuked the Pharisees for making a terrible mistake among many. He reproved them for teaching the people that the scriptures are an end in itself. That if you come to the scriptures, which what they would call the Tanakh, the Torah, the Nevim, and the Ketuvim, the, prophet, pro, the law, the prophets, and the writings. If you come to the, the Bible, and if you do what it says, you'll have eternal life. And Jesus said, that's wrong. 
He said in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. And it is they that testify of me. You see, scripture, the written word, points to the living word. That's its function. You read scripture, and in scripture, you begin to see someone. Someone moving about in history. And that person is Christ. It brings you to him. So you see him, you understand him, you come to him for forgiveness, for salvation. John 3.16 is probably the most famous passage in the world. We love to quote it. But John 3.16 didn't die on the cross. Jesus did. John 3.16 exposits why. It's all about Christ. Even when his disciples, they, they couldn't figure out Scripture, they couldn't, they couldn't see how is it possible that the Lion of Judah could be the Lamb of God, that the conquering hero could be the suffering servant, that the gateway to the kingdom is through a cross, a humiliating, despised stake in the ground. So Jesus came to give them understanding. Speaking to two of the disciples who were suffering from this terrible defeat concerning the cross, he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning See, Jesus exposits. He's the interpretive key to the gospel. Otherwise, there is so much of Scripture, so much of the gospel that remains an enigma. It's a mystery. How does God use suffering and death to bring about his purposes? And his disciples in general were suffering from the same problem. He said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law and the prophets and the, the, the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand. You see, those who come to Christ, they gain an understanding that he's the central figure. But not only that, they can discern truth from error. Reading from Acts 17, verse 11, when he came to, to Berea, what did the Bereans do when they heard his message? It says, they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They could accurately examine truth claims in light of the gospel. They were open, they were willing to listen, but they didn't give him a blank check that he could cash it against their souls at the end of the day. They took his truth claims and they compared it in the light of Scripture to see if it was so, and they did this every single day. You see, when you come to Christ, you become enlightened. You begin to have this understanding. You begin to exercise this critical discernment, truth from error. You can examine people's truth claims in light of the gospel. Now, why do you need to do that? Why is that so important? Well, Jesus warned his disciples. He said, See that you are not led astray, 
For many will come in my name saying, I am he. And the time is at hand. Do not go after them. Got that? You see, oh, excuse me. Got a text, text message. Hold it, hold it, hold it. Uh, oh, man, I didn't pay that. Okay, no, no. I got this text message 10 days ago. You know what it says? So cool. It says, this is real. I, I'm just sharing with you. The UPS package has arrived at the warehouse and cannot be delivered due to incomplete address information. Please confirm your address in the link. There's the link. Then below it says, please reply to one, then exit the SMS. Open the SMS activation link again, or copy the link to Safari browser and open it. The U.S. Postal team wishes you a wonderful day. Wow. I got a message from the post office. It sounds so official. And all of these things I got to do, you go to this link and you exit the SMS, whatever that is, and you activate this and you go back to the browser. Wow, I better open that link and give them everything they want. But just, just for chance, maybe I should have this examined to see if it's real. Wouldn't that be a good idea before I open up the link and just go for it? So I took this message down to the, the main post office on 3rd and Washington, and I said to the woman at the desk, I got this from you guys. What do you think? <laughs> she was examining that for about three and a half seconds. And she said, that's not from us. I said, how do you know? She said, well, look at the source where it's coming from, Outlook, Washington. We have no post office there. And by the way, if we have an undeliverable package, we don't send text messages like this. And she said, this is the form. This is what we use. So bottom line, she looked at that and she goes, that's a scam. Who said that? You guys are right out loud. Raise your hand if you've ever received a scam message in some device, some way, some we've all been we've all been, been targeted. Well, if you can be scammed by so many sundry things, do you think you'd be scammed by the gospel? By someone coming to you and claiming his name and saying, oh, by the way, you need to act because the time is short. Sounds like a good sales pitch. Do not go after him. Well, maybe we won't be so brutal and call it a scam, but the deception is there nonetheless. I have these two bottles that I use in my world religions class. This bottle has uh, salt and pepper in it. I mean, you can see it. Uh, it doesn't require a great deal of effort to note, note the distinction. You don't have to unscrew it, pour it out. You can just look at it. I don't know if you can see it. Salt and pepper. You know, in my classroom, the kids just look at it. And, yeah, yeah, I see it, Mr. Herring. Let's move on. Okay. I use this to show the differences between Islam and Christianity. There are many similarities. You know, we're both monotheistic religions. We believe that this is only one God, and God is concerned about sin, and there's an eternal destiny, but the differences are so distinct. In Christianity, Jesus is the Son of God. In Islam, he is not the Son of God. Big difference. In Christianity, Jesus died on the cross. In Islam, he did not die on the cross. 
In Christianity, Jesus died to make atonement for our sins. In Islam, there is no such thing as atonement. In Christianity, Jesus is our mediator between God and man. In Islam, there is no mediator. You know, once in their lives, they are required to go on Hajj, and they come to Mecca, to the Grand Mosque, and they make a procession around the Kaaba, and then they go out to the plain of Arafat. And what are they doing there? It's the highlight of the Hajj. There they meet with God, one-on-one, to find absolution for their sins. There's no mediator there. Well, I got news for you. There's no plain of Arafat in Christianity. There's a cross, and there's one who died to make atonement for your sin, who mediates grace between you and God. Big difference. We we teach in Christianity, there is one God who eternally exists, his Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Islam, there is no such trinity. We preach and teach salvation by faith. They teach salvation and works. And it goes on and on. But that's not hard to discern. But I have the second bottle. This has salt and sugar in crystalline form. I show that to the kids. I say, can you see the difference? Can you observe it? And they go, no way. I I have no idea which is salt and which is sugar. They look so much alike. They're so similar to one another. Both are white. Both are crystalline in form. Both dissolve in water. So you're going to have to unscrew the lid, pour them out, sort out the, the crystals, and examine the crystals one by one. And then you'll discover they're made from two entirely different elements. So much so that you don't want to get in the habit of pouring salt on your cereal or shaking sugar on your steak. You'll know the difference then, and you won't like it. I use this to show the difference between Christianity and those who claim to be Christians who knock at your door. And they speak fluent Christianese better than you. And their statements of faith are impossible to deny across the board. So what are you going to do? You unscrew the lid, you pour it out, and you examine the doctrinal teaching behind the statements of faith, and you then discover these are two different elements. See, that kind of discernment between truth and error by examining truth claims in the light of the gospel saves us so much. Paul gives a dire warning in Galatians uh, chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. You want to temper with the gospel? You want to change it in any way, the flavor of it, to suit your own tastes? What are the consequences of doing anything to alter the gospel? He speaks to the Galatians who seem to be waffling, who seem to be moving away from uh, the gospel of faith to a gospel of works. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another, but there are some who trouble you and who want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say it again, If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. 
You know, no graver words can be spoken by a human being than those right there. Let him be accursed. You know what he's saying? Let him be damned for all eternity. The consequences of tampering with the gospel are the most extreme you could ever possibly imagine. So those who come to Christ are empowered to share the gospel. Those who come to Christ are empowered enlightened to share the gospel, and this leads us to our third gospel, uh, third gospel truth. Third gospel truth. Those who come to Christ are transformed to share the gospel. Let's compare the Jews in Thessalonica with the Jews in Berea. And what do we discover? You know, as Paul was preaching the gospel to the people in Thessalonica, there were many people to come to Christ, and, and, and people should rejoice in that. Uh, but that didn't happen. It says, but the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason. We don't know exactly who Jason is, except for they thought that missionaries were there, and they probably were, and they thought he, by that he, he was harboring criminals. Seeking to bring them out to the crowd, and when they could not find him, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Character's so flawed. There's so many levels of, of concern right here that you could act like this. But in contrast, you have the Jews in Berea. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness. Talk about a difference in character. So here's the question. Which of these two groups will become a model of transformation? What do you think? Us. Paul's going to commend uh, a group of believers uh, and showcase them as an example to all the people in the surrounding cities of what it's like to be transformed by the gospel. He says to them, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. We find that in 1 Bereans chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. Oh, correction. You find it in 1 Thessalonians. So you would have bet that the model church, it would be an example of what it's like to be transformed by the gospel, would come out of Berea. Just the best possible setting Oh, but oh no, it's Thessalonica. See, God has the power to save from the guttermost to the uttermost. The most least likely place where you would ever see the power of God to transform lives comes out of a cesspool. That's where you see character change. Maybe you're thinking that about yourself. Don't expect much from me. I've come from a bad background. Well, guess what? You're looking at a church that did.
this is my 30th year teaching high school. And there are a lot of pros and cons of teaching high school students. <laughs> a lot of cons. <laughs> there are some pros. <laughs> One of the things I like about high school students is they're so direct and down to earth. You know, labor so hard, labor so hard with your lesson plan to teach truth. And you think you did it. Wow, and you just followed that lesson plan down to a T. They got those handouts. You were just so elegant. Eloquent. <laughs> and you say to them, that's the truth. And they look at you and go, so what? So what? Even if it's true, what difference does it make to me? I want to know what's going to happen to me in the here and now, not the hereafter. Well, I'm interested to know too. What's going to happen to you when you respond to Christ in the here and now? Oh, we know what's going to happen in the hereafter. It's sheer glory. But what's happening to you as you sit here? Nothing? You just do the best you can and... And every time you go out and you act badly, you come here, you get forgiveness, and you go out and do it again and again, this revolving door of, of forgiveness and despair and defeat, is that what Christianity is like? Or does God intend to change your soul the moment you come to him? And will continue to do that until you enter into glory where God finishes it off. You see, you don't get a clean slate in Christianity. You get a new you. Far better. To the Corinthians, Paul said, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Wow. The Christian life begins now. The moment you put your trust in Christ, that's when it all begins. See, character matters. God knows it, but so do you. You know it too. Character matters. Sadly, there are times when people never get to the point where they can consider the content of the gospel because they're offended by the character of the church. Character matters. God is a business in the business of changing our lives, starting with day one. Now, we've covered three gospel truths. I'd like to end with one gospel imperative. Prayed about this, studied this over and over again. What could be so important? What must you do after hearing all of this? Well, come to this great theological epiphany. Come to Christ. What a brainstorm. You know, it's embedded in all three gospel truths. Those who come to Christ are empowered. Those who come to Christ are enlightened. Those who come to Christ are transformed. Oh, beloved, the goal of the church is not that you give intellectual assent to ideas and concepts. The world knows what that is. It's called philosophy. Not that we disparage reason and logic. But that's not the goal. We're not here to burden you down with a laundry list of 
of ritual works, and hopefully if you do at least 75% of them, maybe you earn your way into the kingdom. That's called religion. We're not teaching a self-help seminar here. Or you might be motivated enough to go home and feel good about yourself. That's psychology. We're not here to teach you some esoteric formula that if you will say these words, you can harness the power of God to accomplish your will. That's called magic. No, we're here to present a person. A person of Christ. And that you can enter into an abiding relationship it in. You suppress it so you can go another day. And all the while, you never knew. It was the Holy Spirit convicting you so that you can be forgiven. Aren't you tired of this? Aren't you just so weary of carrying this burden about you? come to Christ and lay that burden down. It's too heavy for any human on this earth to carry. You weren't meant to lay it down. As Jesus said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. That's the business at hand today. Oh, would love to have you come to church on Sunday. But it's imperative that you come to Christ today. If you feel that conviction, you feel drawn to 